Well, hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Plain Talking UK podcast. It's edition episode number 461. I'm Neville Bounds and in this week's show we pay tribute to famous pilot Jim Tweeto. NASA saves the world again and it's international lose a wheel week. Uh, in the military we've got a short Ukraine update and lastly we talk about some listener feedback about the struggles of flight training, which is a very interesting item, I must say. Uh, joining me this week is a very warm uh, Matt Smith over <laughs> in the PTUK studio, is that right? Yeah, we're not going to discuss the temperature in here, I think, because I'm sure it uh, contravenes some EU and UK law uh, with the temperature it is in here currently. But uh, So we will be... Uh, we, we, I mean, we, we're being told in my ears we're not paying anyone. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Definitely don't get a salary. That that I can confirm. So uh, uh, yes, it's it's a little one. All right then. In that case, it is a, a very very uh, cool thirty two degrees in the studio cool. this evening, yeah. uh, and that's despite having had a fan on now for about twenty minutes. So uh, I don't think you're even allowed to have animals in that temperature, let no. alone human beings. No, you? the dog has left. I can confirm. The dog has left the studio. <laughs> I, I'm pleased to say. So yes. Uh, how about in Buckinghamshire? How how's it been weather wise? A little bit cooler, but it's still a bit humid as well unfortunately mm. um so uh, but uh, there we go i've got the fan on so sorry for the background noise yes. but it, it is an essential part of being in this rather warm studio unfortunately yes uh, me too but, unfortunately i've got a fan on in here as well so apologies for the background norm- noise we normally go for clean um but uh, yes. not going to be able to well, do it, that tonight that's how it is isn't it so uh, over the, the other side of the pond is armando how's things with you all well here. I'm uh, glad that I had a little bit of a schedule change, so I was able to join you guys on the show today. It's always lovely to do that. Uh, although we have been fighting, uh, including in my flying, just been fighting weather. It's just been a crazy couple weeks with weather. Uh, last week was, I, I sent you guys some of the pictures, but I had two days of flying in the southeast United States, and just those two happened to be the worst days of the week for weather. So it's just a lot of picking your way through it and you know the, the beauty of flying a jet as opposed to a turboprop or GA airplane is you can go 300 miles out of the way and it only costs you an extra 10 minutes but um, yeah yeah which is challenging and uh, Matt what, you been, what have you been up to this week uh, not a lot really just uh, just just working really just working and and that really just yeah that's about mm-hmm. it really yeah no no flying nothing fancy like that which i think is uh, very different to your week nev shall we say i used to work with a fella called alan in a previous job and no one would ever fly with him because oh. <laughs> or go on the train because there was always an incident oh <laughs> either you know aircraft went tech diversion breaking down the usual business so people stop flying with him uh, i think i've got to be careful that my colleagues stop carry on flying with me at the moment because i'm seem oh. to be subject to a number of uh, issues that have been going on with my flying um last monday we fl- i flew to brussels but um i did notice that we seem to be at around about eight thousand feet for a, a, a very long way into the east coast of uh, england and i did detect a 180 degree turn to the left um was it the left or the right i can't remember but matt's got she got the the map of it the uh, uh, the radar trace of the flight itself uh there and um yes we did a uh, a left hand 180 um because the aircraft wouldn't pressurize um so we went all the way back to heathrow um lots of people were a bit cross because unfortunately ba had cancelled 
the Madrid and Barcelona flights that morning. So BA said, no problem at all. We'll get you on the Brussels flight. You can go to Iberia on the other two flights. But of course, they didn't make those flights uh, because we came back to Heathrow. Um, but very well handled by, by the airline, have to say full marks to them. Uh, we stayed on the aircraft um, at, whilst they got a replacement crew out um, and a new aircraft. And then off we went. Um, so that got us back in about three hours late, which is a bit a bit unfortunate, but, you know, that's how it goes. Unfortunately, a few people on the aircraft needed to have a bit of a word with themselves, I think, because some of them I thought were unnecessarily... Uh, rude oh. uh, especially to the captain who you know let's face it he didn't really want to have a, a tech aircraft particularly no. um so one particular gentleman came oh, so the word gentleman in, in inverted commas uh, a <laughs> chap came up to him and because uh, he was in the um, galley area by this time and said well what are you going to do for me he said well i've ticked the box as far as i'm concerned sir he said i've landed the aircraft safe, safely and you're back at heathrow i'm now going off duty and the uh, <laughs> The crew, uh, the replacement crew will help you and the ground crew and the cabin crew. So, you know, but honestly, uh, the, the airline couldn't have done enough. Absolutely brilliant. But uh, just one or two people just need to uh, calm down a bit, I think. I do, I do worry sometimes. I mean, th I mean, this is not isolated, is it? And I do worry that people sort of forget, really, that the ultimate goal here is to ensure that whatever happens, that the passengers are kept safe. Mm. You know, and I mean, if they had have rocketed up to sort of, you know, 25,000 feet, you know, if the aircraft is not pressurising, I oh, mean, yeah. how, just just out of curiosity, Nev, I mean, are you saying you were at 8,000 feet? You didn't go above yeah, that Yeah, I had a quick look on Flight Radar 24 because they've got uh, Wi-Fi on board the, mm. the aircraft, so we're at uh, 8,000 feet. Mm. Um now, I mean, no, how, how does that feel? Because, I, mean, I mean, are you aware of, the, of it trying it, to pressurise? I was definitely aware of quite a bit of heat in the aircraft because uh, on the A320, the pressurisation system also operates the air conditioning system as well. So it's quite obvious it was very warm on the aircraft. Right. Uh, and a bit of ear popping from time to time when they're doing some resets, I think, and bits mm. and bits like that. Uh, I mean, yes, as the captain said, well, you know, we haven't got enough fuel to go to uh, Brussels, so we're going to come back home. Uh, but also, I think he probably could have gone to Brussels, but without landing with the legal amount of fuel. Um, and at the end of the day, there's better engineering support back in London, and you don't want an aircraft going tech down route, really. No. If you can bring it back to your home base, then so much the better. And there's obviously inconvenience for other people to get all that. But uh, a lot of people are going, well, you know, we're nearly halfway to Brussels. Why can't we carry on? Well, if there was another fault that had developed as well, it wasn't mm. just pressurisation, it was something else. Now, that's a whole load of trouble, uh, really, isn't it? So, But, uh, but presumably you couldn't – are you – I mean, again, this is my naivety, uh, and uh, Armando, this may be something to be able to answer for me, but can you – can you remain at 8,000 feet for the entire duration of your journey, if necessary, as long as you get clearance? 100 percent. Uh, the cabin is usually between six and 8,000 feet anyway, depending on the airliner. Mm. So being unpressurized at 8,000 feet, uh, you're totally fine. That's actually where you hang out anyways on a, on a long yeah. flight. But, but Nev is entirely right in, in all of his comments. I, I mean, you don't want to take an airplane if, if there's things going wrong and pressurization's wrong. Now, could there be multiple failures? Could could that, you know, lead to now if you had a fire, smoke and fumes event, you know, could you drop the mask or the mask? You know, there's all kinds of things that you just don't want to go down that road. Nev is entirely correct on this one. 
The other thing that was interesting was that uh, uh, I spoke to Captain Al, uh, and he actually um, was on the exactly the same aircraft, the exact same range of the aircraft, last week when he was flying from Heathrow to Manchester, and they had the same problem as well. So they really they hadn't fixed it <laughs> clearly. So, uh, but uh, no, it was all good. Um, I say a quick uh, fifteen minute back into Heathrow, which was marvellous. Um, but these things happen, you know, but one or two people were getting mm. unnecessarily stroppy. As I say, you sort of worry that the fact that they, they, they've not realised that actually the, you know, the potential seriousness of the situation that they were finding themselves in, isn't it? You know, may, maybe in some respects, you know, too, too, too lesser information has made people ing ignorant maybe to, to the potential dangers, I don't know. Well, exactly. Yeah, and, and uh, John here has, uh, John Jester, a good comment in the chat room, about uh, BA has a specific company procedure to take off with the packs off. Um, I think most operators here in the US, you only do that if you need the additional performance. Um, but he's a little bit correct here in that you, now you're taking off with the packs off. You don't know if there's a problem until you get into the air and then you have a situation like this if, if, it's a, if it is a, a problem with the packs. But I think a lot of our operators here in the US only do that if uh, if you need the additional performance from a, a high altitude airport. Yeah, and he says that if the valves for the pressurization and the aft of the airplane don't close, you can't go over water. So, oh, really? uh, would, okay. well, how I don't come? know. What does that, what does that mean? Why, why? Sorry, many questions. <laughs> we'll get onto actual stories in a minute. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure of the technical answer. I'm sure that's a, com a company, a GOM, and a, reg a federal regulation or, you know, a BIASA regulation. Uh, for a technical reason, I'm going to have to wait for him to uh, ditching, say that. I think it's it just ditching, is that? Yes, I don't know. It would be. Obviously, you, if you, you can't ditch an aircraft if you've got the, out yeah. the valves open otherwise. Uh, you get yeah, lots of water into the aircraft, I'd imagine. Okay, that would be a problem, certainly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, those holes are pretty small back there. I don't know. Uh, yeah, John, I send in feedback. <laughs> okay. Lovely, lovely. Your homework, John, should you choose yeah. to accept it. Uh, now, while, while we're talking about the chat room, actually, a very good uh, evening to Maxine. I know you're going to uh, br bring us up to date with who's in there uh, at the moment. Uh, the picture behind me, uh, which way shall I go? Uh, that way, shall we say? There we go. Uh, so for those of you watching on YouTube, as I say, I've got a green screen behind me. Wonderful picture supplied to me by the wonderful Jonathan Warner, as usual. And uh, it's the mighty TF-104G Starfighter, fresh from his trip to Rome. And yes, yes, he did get to catch up with the lovely Jenny in Rome as well. So uh, yes, uh, uh, Mr. Warner has been filling his camera up with more photographs that will take him an eternity to go through. But and this is indeed uh, one. It's not on 35 millimeter film, otherwise he would be uh, burning through it at a heck of a. Well, point. indeed, he'd, he'd be, well, and he'd be very poor by the end of it as well. Yeah, <laughs> to be said, it'd be very expensive, uh, very exper expensive experience. Anyway, who else have we got then? Uh, so in the chat room, our good friend Mazuz is in there, Hobby Time is in there, Richard Adams, Oscar is in there, which is great to see him there, uh, Captain Cruz, uh, who else we've got, Dirk S is in there, um, John Jester obviously, Jenny Parkinson, uh, Carlos Steppings, heard hmm. of him, yes, mm. uh, Nick Codling of course, uh, Bill's in there from Canada, hi Bill, hope you're well, 
Um, and uh, who else is in there? That's about oh, Alex, Alex Robinson as well. Aaron P is in there as well. Um, and that's about all, I think. All yeah. the usual sus suspects. They are. By the sound of it. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, so thanks to everybody for joining today. Really appreciate it. I think it's about time we did some uh, commercial. Oh, I you? knew you were going to do that. Hang on. Uh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> sorry, I was pressing the wrong buttons. Uh, right. I'm ready now. Good. <laughs> As you were. No, it's all sorted. <laughs> Off we go then. Just commercial. of the show, Ariel Tweedo confirmed on her social media that her father, pilot Jim Tweedo, known for his starring role in the Discovery Channel series Flying Wild Alaska, uh, passed away when a Cessna 180 crashed shortly after takeoff, killing him and outdoor guide Shane Reynolds. Uh, Tweedo and Reynolds took off on Friday morning, and around 11.48 a.m., Alaska State Troopers were notified of an SOS activation from an in-reach device. Uh, the state troopers posted an online update stating that the plane crash was reported about 35 miles northeast of Shaktulik. Uh, the plane was reportedly seen taken off but not climbing before the deadly crash. The pair were on a, on a hunting trip on the day of the crash with uh, one member of their hunting party staying on the ground and actually witnessing that mishap. Uh, the Anchorage Daily News reports that the NTSB was sending a crew to this remote crash site. Uh, Jim Tweedo, who was 68 years old, was a resident of Uniclete, Alaska, and Reynolds, 45 years old, was a resident of Orofino, Idaho. Uh, both are survived by their loving families. Uh, many people know Jim Tweedo from Flying Wild Alaska, which followed him, his wife, and their three daughters, uh, Ariel, Ayla, and Elaine as aviators working in some of the most remote parts of Alaska. That show was one of my favorite, and it ran for three seasons uh, in 2011 and 2012. Uh, Tweedo went to college in Alaska to play hockey, but ended up discovering a love for aviation. Eventually, he obtained his pilot's license. Uh, he stayed in Alaska and settled down in Uniclete, believe it or not, to build fishing boats. Uh, he eventually transitioned to the life of a professional pilot taking a job for a small airline in town. He ended up marrying the owner's daughter, Ferno, and later went out on his own with his own company. Uh, his company's success, as we saw in the show, grew, and he later joined with uh, Mike Hagelin and formed Hagland Aviation. Uh, Hagland Aviation merged with Era Alaska in 2008, creating which was at the time the largest regional airline in Alaska. That has since been renamed the Raven Air Group. Now, while the Discovery Channel series had catapulted him into national recognition, Tweedo was actually a very well-respected pilot in the area. He had over 30,000 hours in the air, uh, and he was, by all accounts, an accomplished pilot and one of the most uh, respected pilots up there in Alaska. As you, as you can imagine, flying small planes in a region like Alaska is dangerous, even for an experienced flyer, and his impact on Alaskan aviation is evident. But with his uh, early prolific career, building uh, fishing boats, nearly three-quarters of the boats in the region were actually built by Tweedo in the, in the 1980s. 
That's according to his uh, Discovery Channel profile. So after sharing the news with the world, Ariel shared pictures of her dad with their family and asking any donations to be made out to Reynolds' wife and daughter, sharing the GoFundMe link, which we'll put in the show notes. As of Tuesday, when I recorded this, it had already raised $115,000. Reynolds was a fishing and hunting guide throughout Alaska for big game and salmon, from the Alaskan Peninsula down to Kodiak Island. Um, now, he actually worked across the Pacific Northwest for over 20 years, and also spent time as a guide in his home state of Idaho. Now, he leaves uh, behind his wife, Gina, and their daughter, Juliet. As you can imagine, the NTSB is investigating the crash, and we expect a, prelim a preliminary report somewhere in the next two weeks. Um, but our hearts, our thoughts, and our prayers are with the Tweedo family and the Reynolds family, but especially Ariel, who is uh, such a good uh, team member for this show and, and has been on the show uh, once or twice. So, um, again, our, our hearts and thoughts uh, go out to the families and on, you know, on this very unfortunate event. Wow. Yeah, just a, a real sad event there. And uh, I think for a lot of us, you know, it was, uh, it's heartbreaking. But one of the first things that came to my mind with this was, there's a lot of mishaps where everybody just kind of questions, well, why, why were they doing that? But this is one of those where it's an experienced pilot doing the thing that he loved and the thing that he knew how to do. Um, and uh, I knew a, a lot of my friends here commented, man, you know, it's, it's sobering if, uh, if a guy like Jim Tweedo can uh, end up in this situation, um, you know, just goes to prove that none of us are invincible and, and even the most experienced, the most trained, uh, the most well-respected uh, aviators sometimes have, uh, <clears throat> you know, mishaps and, and, an untimely demise so uh yeah it's just kind of a sobering one it kind of hits all of us especially just mm -hmm. such a, a well-loved person in aviation or a character in aviation too and then of course you know that first the I, I actually saw ariel's uh social media before i heard this on the news um you know and, and ariel's a friend of the show and we've met up with her and mm. meg and i met up with her in uh, in uh, huntington beach a couple years ago after the women in aviation special and she is just a, a wonderful human being from a wonderful family so again just kind of our, our thoughts and prayers go out to her and the family and the aviation community in, in alaska so yeah yeah um but in the chat room uh it's uh, carlos is saying actually he's uh, he's not with us because he's uh, djing the, this evening but he is watching us uh, and saying very touching piece uh armando i personally love the flying wild alaska series on discovery it was a great insight into extreme flying 100 mm. percent. and and i think it was one of those that it was the first real you know media exposure to that kind of flying mm. out there so a lot of pilots i think it generated a lot of interest mm. in pilots going up to alaska and then you had ice pilots that came out on discovery channel a few years later maybe around the same time but i think those shows are, are really influential in kind of generating interest in these uh sort of niche corners of aviation um where people make a living um so flying wild alaska and, and ice pilots and uh you know, some of the other shows on, on the reality TV shows are, 
are uh, really impressive to all pilots, young and, and old. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. Anyway, Matt, you've got the uh, the next story, which is, of course, a Ryanair story. Of course, why would it not be? Uh, yes, let's take a look uh, then. The headline on this one, it's from theirishtimes.com, and the headline is Ryanair seeking to recruit 100 tech jobs. Oh, hello, this sounds interesting. I, maybe I should apply. Uh, Ryanair is still looking to fill more than 100 technology roles in Ireland as it seeks to drive innovation and digital transformation at the airline. The jobs are part of a recruitment drive announced in November last year for Ryanair Labs, a state-of-the-art digital and IT Innovation Hub based at the airline's office in Swords when it said it would create 150 roles. The company is recruiting for roles in software development, business intelligence and data scientists, uh, security infrastructure and operations, business analysts, project managing and or project planning I should say sorry and delivery, delivery professionals and quality assurance engineers. It has been a challenging time for tech companies in Ireland with over 2,000 tech workers losing their jobs in Ireland in less than 12 months said Ryanair's Chief Technology Officer John Hurley Ryanair remains in a strong growth position with ambitious passenger targets of 300 million passengers by 2034 and we are delighted to be able to offer Ireland's tech talent the opportunity to work on cutting-edge projects with Europe's number one airline that will support our growth targets um, so I mean, so, so 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 what sort of uh, what sort of things are they talking about here in in terms of tech development? Are, I mean, are they talking essentially data? Is that what they mean? Is sort of looking? Is that essentially what they're after? Is like people to sort of manage them data? So network security engineers and all that. A data analyst. Wow. Okay. Network administrator. Um, iOS developer. Oh wow. Okay. Oh, that's for the app. Finally. Yes. Yeah, a front-end developer, I'm being told. These are all being given to me in my ears, by the way. Sorry about this. Uh, <laughs> anyway, lo you know, lots of basic, tech roles and stuff, but it's just a load of data. Basically. It's just basically all those things that we complain about when it when it all goes wrong. Yeah. You know, we're talking about the the BA app or the reservation oh, systems. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. You've Maybe set they're Nev just off. trying to address You've that. set him <laughs> off again, haven't you? He's rolling his eyes. I, I can't see him, but I know he's rolling his eyes. <laughs> Well, I hope they do a better job of it than BA have done. Honestly, their app and their uh, booking mm. and IT business needs a serious overhaul. IT in general for BA has been a bit of a challenge of yeah. late, hasn't it? I think that's probably the best way to describe that. But, uh, I mean, I know from uh, one of our friends who used to work there, I mean, data, as you can imagine, especially when we're talking these kind of numbers, I mean, data and, and stats and all that kind of thing are a huge mm. part of any airline, but especially someone like Ryanair. They, they need, you know, like all that, you know, all that information at their fingertips and stuff. So some interesting tech positions there. I, I might think, go for uh, the uh, the uh, network um, the network yes, role. I think, I think that's something uh, I could Richard Adams do. makes an interesting point oh, yeah. uh, as, as well. Uh, he says that wonder if they're looking for any cloud specialists. <laughs> he, he Apparently they are actually, we're being told yeah. in our ears, but perhaps not the type of clouds that Richard is referring to. Uh, cloud, develop, cloud software developer. Oh, Java. Oh, hello. I love uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is perfect. I, I'm a cloud developer at Ryanair. Yeah, oh, yeah. oh, is oh, that so? Oh, lovely. More pie in the sky stuff. Yeah, absolutely. See what I did there. See, and this is without whiskey. Goodness yeah, only knows what could happen if I go and charge my glass. Yeah. Uh, anyway. 
<laughs> Next. <laughs> so on the uh, the Vox.com website, um, it's all about NASA's newest X-plane uh, that wants to save the planet. Well, there's a new X-plane in town, and like its predecessors, it's a little bit goofy looking. Uh, unlike most of the space agency's exp uh, experimental aircraft, the new X-plane isn't built to break speed barriers or carry astronauts or test the possibilities of unmanned air combat. This one is designed to uh, fight climate change. NASA and Boeing announced on Tuesday that the Air Force had designated a new transonic truss-winged aircraft uh, called the X-66A. Uh, the design is a product of the Sustainable Flight Demonstrator Project, which is a NASA-Boeing partnership to produce a single-aisle plane that promises to slash fuel consumption for commercial aircraft. The new aircraft looks like a giant glider with long skinny wings propped up by diagonal struts to reduce drag. <clears throat> Excuse me. If widely adopted, the truss wing design could transform sustainable air travel as we know it. The new X-66A is also the first X-plane designed specifically to achieve the goal of net zero greenhouse gas emissions for uh, air aircraft. Uh, the big idea behind the transonic truss-braced wing concept is an update to the aircraft configuration or the plane's architecture. Unlike the low-wing design that dominates the commercial aircraft configuration today, the new Boeing design has wings that stretch over the top of the plane's tubular body. This reduces drag but also allows for a wider variety of propulsion systems, from bigger jet engines to exposed propellers. It's also fast. The transonic part of the concept name refers to its ability uh, to fly just shy of the speed of sound, or around 600 miles per hour. Uh, NASA likes the idea so much, it's investing $425 million into the project under a funded Space Act agreement. Uh, Boeing and other partners will chip in an additional $725 million. Once Boeing builds a full-scale demonstrator aircraft, NASA says it will complete testing in the late 2020s, and if all goes well, the public could see the new technologies in commercial aircraft sometime in the 2030s. If you squint your eyes, though, the new transonic truss-braced wing concept looks an awful lot like the commercial aircraft you see on runways today, which is not a bad thing, but for one, it's not a radical design, uh, unlike the very odd-looking uh, blended wing X-48, which might scare off the passengers. Now, the, the similar design has also some benefits for the manufacturing process, but at the end of the day, the new aircraft configuration alone won't make these next-generation planes greener, according to Brent uh, Cobley, who's project manager for NASA's Sustainable Flight Demonstrator Project. Um, and I'm, I'd imagine it's all about the weights and composites and what have you, uh, construction of these aircraft as well. But, um, well, it's interesting that there's people who've got an eye on the future and investing some pretty big uh, uh, dollars into the projects too. Doesn't it look awful similar to the Faraday aircraft? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Every time I see anything like this, you know, yeah, John is saying it, the story looked familiar, but it actually, it looks familiar because it's almost the exact same design as the Faraday Biha. Uh, hmm. which is interesting that now NASA's jumping on this. And this is Neil's, Neil Cluffley's problem, right? Is you get somebody that like NASA who can get massive industry partner funding and venture capital funding here in the U.S. And they will uh, indubitably, to, you know, proceed with this kind of project and leaving a small 
manufacturer like Ferder in the dust. And, and this just, it's just a lack of opportunity in the UK that, that he's always uh, expressing his, his frustration about. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Well, this is an interesting. Uh, John is asking about the X, uh, it's just experimental. Any, any X, X66, X15, X anything uh, is, is usually uh, an experimental designation until it gets some kind of uh, traction past the prototype stage and then they'll actually assign it some kind of uh, model designator. But, it, but these are NASA airplanes, so I'm sure they're, NASA doesn't produce airplanes. They, they have industry partners, so I'm sure whatever it is that they're uh, scheming here, they'll probably partner up with Boeing or, or Lockheed or, or L3 or somebody to, to produce something. Um, so essentially, you know, the Boeing one, they'll just give it a Boeing designator after the prototype stage. Yeah, there we go. Now, next story uh, is Armando. It's all about the uh, uh, raising the pilot's retirement age. Oh, boy. Yeah, this is uh, controversial here in the U.S., um, so just recently, the uh, so Bloomberg government reported amongst all the national news media that pilots would be able to fly commercial airplanes, or at least Part 121, for an additional two years under an amendment added to the House Aviation Legislation Bill in response to uh, increasing demand for aviation workers. So the House Transportation Infrastructure Committee on Wednesday uh, narrowly approved an amendment by a 32 to 31 vote that would increase the mandatory age, uh, retirement age for commercial pilots for up to 67 from the current age of 65. Now that provision is now included in a sweeping legislation that's supposed to reauthorize the Federal Aviation Administration. So the panel is still working to complete its uh, markup of the FAA bill, so it hasn't been passed yet or um, and then it still needs to pass the House floor and then and then be negotiated with the Senate. Um, so our, our two houses or chambers in, in the in the U.S. Congress. Uh, but a representative from Texas, Troy Niels, said uh, never before have U.S. airlines been more desperate for pilots. Uh, he was one of the sponsors of this amendment. Uh, he, he said that in a debate with the in the House on uh, last Tuesday. Um, Obviously, we know that the restriction doesn't apply to charter pilots, so Part 135 and Part 91 aircraft uh, or operators. But uh, getting thousands of certified pilots to reach mandatory age each year over the next two decades, uh, according to the Government Accountability Office, some pilots and groups representing regional and low-cost airlines have pushed Congress to change that retirement um, until they change, uh, reach the age of 67. But then on the other side of the house is the... Uh, organizations like ALPA, the Airline Pilots Association, who are opposing the retirement age increase. Um, so this last happened in 2007. The retirement age was increased from 60 to 65. Uh, and all of those that are opposing the fix or this kind of Band-Aid fix are saying that it's a, it's a short-term fix to a long-term challenge and that it actually uh, raises scheduling and safety concerns. Um, so... Yeah, you can imagine this is uh, this was interesting, uh, especially the reaction to this from the Regional Pilots Airlines Association. I don't know if that's the name of the, the the union, but they are of course on board with this because they can't fill the seats, and all their regional pilots are moving up to the 
the major airlines and the legacy airlines. And it's, it's, it's uh, crazy because I, I just recently saw, I think uh, SkyWest and Republic have now kind of instituted these mandatory training contracts where you will serve at least two years with, with a regional airline before you can get let out of your contract. Um, and, uh, and then the, the airline pilots association and the major and, and legacy airlines are opposing this because they're saying they need those training slots. So now they got to, everything is booked out years and now they got to take these two additional years for pilots that are going to remain in there. And now they get, they got to schedule recurrent training, initial training, uh, transition training, requalification training, um, those slots were already spoken for to address the pilot shortage of, uh, of bringing up pilots from regional airlines into the majors and the legacies. Um, so it's a little bit of a, uh, again, a disparity. And, and obviously this, this is an advantage for the regionals and the low cost, because that's where people are using as stepping stones, but it's a, uh, certainly a disadvantage for the Lager, uh, legacies and the major airlines. So, uh, I don't know. We'll see. It hasn't passed yet. This is, you know, the, the, the bill was introduced. It, uh, it passed its, uh, its committee, but we'll see if it actually passes the House and the Senate votes. Interesting. I was just going back to an article, well, 17 years ago, I just looked it up, um, and uh, BA was planning, or did actually uh, carry out the fact that we're going to uh, increase pilots' retirement age from 55. <laughs> what, what it was back in 2006 yeah. would you believe uh, and then they uh the the change to the normal retirement age for cabin crew went to 60 and then 65 uh and then when pilots were uh, retired at 60 at that point as well so uh, yeah yeah it's uh it's crazy and there's some questions here in the chat room uh so some some of our uh our chat room is uh saying, you know, age 65 is an age discrimination if you're medically fit and able to carry on flying after 65. I think, uh, I think generally for part 121, that's just a, an unacceptable risk. Um, John Jester says, uh, no, please no, uh, heck no. <laughs> so that's, that's a, we know where John stands on this as a 121 guy. Um, oh, and, and that actually reminds me. So a lot of, we, we know we've talked about this, industry being based on seniority. Well, imagine if you're, if you are planning, like, you know, where you're going to be, this could be bidding for a base, bidding for an airplane, or just even a schedule, your quality of life. And you, and you are planning on being, you know, in the top, you know, 10%. Now, if they decide to keep pilots on for an additional two years, your seniority uh, movement, your seniority progression just went down pretty significantly and you may be stuck somewhere where you don't want to be uh, for the next couple of years. Yeah, we saw that during COVID. Um, uh, there's an, there was another comment in the chat room. What if the pilots don't want to continue for another two years? <clears throat> Captain Jeff, I think, uh, I think most of the airlines will probably, uh, will probably offer either keep your age 65 retirement or continue on to age 67. So um, it depends on how much you want to love flying and how many XYs you have and how much you have to keep flying. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, let's see. And Alex says, or sorry, 
Aaron responding to Alex says, and you can leave any time you wish, but it's up to you to make the retirement provision for that. That's a, that's exactly right. I imagine if this actually does pass that most airlines will have some kind of, um, you know, you can, you can leave anywhere in those two year in that two year period. But what do I know? I'm a part 91 guy. So yeah. And Richard says uh, he agrees with Aaron. It's not like endless SIM checks and medicals aren't already a perfectly good filter. Age alone is ridiculous. And um, yeah, that is how some people, some people feel. So lots of, uh, this is. So, uh, yeah, so uh, John is asking me actually, how, how do I feel about it as a passenger? I, I, part of me is actually, I mean, again, as Armando saying there, I mean, it's the same with a coach driver here in the UK. I mean, I don't care if the coach driver is in his eighties, as long as he's smashing that medical, uh, and ticking all the boxes and you know uh, any pilot regardless of age seniority or whatever will be doing the same check rides as everyone else at the end of the day as long as they're ticking all those boxes and as long as the pa- I mean for me it's more as uh, you know uh, the retirement age is there as like I, I, I guess it, in olden times it was it was it was something that you aimed for because you wanted to sort of stop working at some point I guess um, in terms of the the pilots uh, well, anybody in any job, if you're happy doing the job and you can tick all the boxes and you are fit and you're healthy and, and, and you're passing the check rides with flying colours and all that kind of thing, then, you know, really, age isn't the barrier it used to be um, for a lot of things, I don't think. So as long as everybody's happy, uh, you know, and as long as he's ticking all, you know, he or she is ticking all the boxes in terms of, of the check ride and stuff, then it should be, the decision I feel should be with the person that's being employed and it shouldn't be forced upon them personally. But Yeah, I couldn't agree more. If they're qualified mm. to operate the aircraft, they're qualified to operate the aircraft. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. Um, so, Matt, next story with you, isn't it, about the uh, Qantas uh, 717? Okay. Uh, yes. Bear with me. Sorry. Uh, yes. Uh, it's uh, flight. Oh, got the wrong camera. Sorry about that. Uh, it's flight radar twenty four. Uh, is the source on this one? The Qantas Boeing seven one seven making an epic journey to its new home. The Boeing seven one seven is a twin engined airliner that was produced by Boeing until two thousand and six. It traces its origins back to the McDonnell Douglas MD eighty. I've heard of that aircraft. Isn't that what Jeff used to fly? Uh, yes, well, he was, uh, and he flies the 717. Oh, the 88 in the right, yes. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, which which in turn uh, can trace its roots back to the McDonald uh, Douglas DC-9, uh, which uh, Armando, you've flown, I think. Is that correct? I have never flown a DC-9, no? uh, not, a, not in the front. I have in the back. Oh, okay. Oh, fair enough. Okay. Uh, Originally called the MD-95, the rebranded 717 represented Boeing's attempt to update their rear-engined twin jet for the 100-seat market following their merger with McDonnell Douglas in 1997. Around 156 aircraft were built in total, with the most prolific operators being Delta Airlines, Hawaiian Airlines, Tran Air, oh, sorry, Air Tran, and Qantas Link. As part of a wider fleet renewal strategy, Qantas are retiring uh, Victor Hotel November 
X-ray Indigo, one of its older 717 aircraft. The aircraft is undertaking long-distance re-delivery flight to Victor Victorville uh, VCV, uh, whilst that's a distance of over 7,080 nautical miles by the shortest route. The range of the small aircraft will require a less direct routing with a significant number of sectors. Uh, so what route is this special aircraft going to be taking? The retirement of the aircraft named Blue Mountains marks the first Australian registered Boeing 717 to leave service. The aircraft holds a special place in the airline's history having operated Jetstar's first flight between Melbourne and uh, Launceston in uh, 2004. The aircraft appears to have completed the first five legs of its epic journey as of June 18, 2023, travelling via the Philippines and Japan. All of these have been operated under the flight number of SXI2341. Uh, so uh, Canberra to Alice Springs, that's taking place on the 16th of June. It'll then on the same day, same day go from Alice Springs to Darwin. Uh, then on June 17th, it'll go from Darwin to, to Kebu. Uh, from, is it Kebu or Seb Cebu? Kebu? Kebu? Cebu. Cebu, okay, yeah. Close. No cigar, as usual. Uh, Cebu then to Nagoya. Uh, that's on June 18th. And then Nagoya to Sapporo uh, on the 18th. Also, whilst we don't have a confirmed route, we anticipate that the aircraft will likely call at An uh, Aden... Uh, Anchorage and Seattle Boeing Field, uh, the BFI, before arriving in Victorville, California, as uh, Victorville is typically used for long-term storage and breakdown of aircraft. There is sadly a strong chance that the aircraft may not fly again. Uh, so why are aircrafts, uh, why are airlines like Qantas replacing the 717? In a world of squeezed margins and renewed focus on sustainability, older aircraft such as the 717 find themselves completely outclassed by new generation aircraft such as the Airbus A220. These newer jets offer significant savings on fuel and CO2 emissions, higher capacity and are more cost effective on regional and short haul sectors. Uh, I could go on. Obviously, we're very, very familiar with that. It's very sad, obviously. I mean, if, you know, for me, I, I, for many people, I mean, my aircraft, I guess, the one that I'm most sad about, sort of like retiring, obviously, and we, I think we did a story about it, didn't we, uh, last week, where we got 7-4 still flying. Um, you know, because there's there are uh, Lufthansa, I think, is one that's still flying the the seven four. But uh, I mean, the seven one that has uh, a special place in a lot of people's hearts, isn't it? For the same, for the same. I don't reason. think the I don't think the seven one seven does. I think the MD ninety five does. Right, <laughs> which is the same airplane. Okay. As John is writing it. I can see him writing it in the show notes and then bolding it and then highlighting it. Uh, that uh, yes, Captain Jeff. Captain Jeff has flown this airplane. We did say it in the news there, but uh, it was also designed by the uh, Wright brothers. It's been around so long. What? Of course, it's no. Of course, it wasn't designed by the oh, Wright. <laughs> but it has been around for a long, long time. So it, it is. It is definitely outclassed, as the article said. I mean, an A220 has the same capacity and is fifty percent more efficient, probably, but it's just not as classic. Hmm. Well, um, normally when there's a story about Malta, we would be handing that over to Carlos to do it. He's the Maltese specialist amongst the team. But as he's uh, doing a gig tonight, it's uh, 
are left to me to talk about this one. It's on simpleflying.com um, and it says that uh, Malta Airport witnessed an incident uh, this week when an air uh, horizon, uh, Boeing 737 aircraft, mistakenly took a wrong turn upon landing, blocking the airport's main runway for approximately half an hour. Uh, the English national football team was amongst the passengers on board the flight, which originated from Birmingham. Uh, the national team's representatives were delayed in getting off the aircraft because it was stuck on a taxiway that led to a dead-end runway. Uh, the de this delay resulted in the postponement, postponement of their planned press conference with the Maltese media. Uh, on the day of the incident, the English national football team competed against Malta and achieved a victory with a score of 4-0. I don't know how that's relevant <laughs> to uh, the fact that the uh, aircraft is stuck, but there we go. It's 4-0 to the British. Um, so the 737400 uh, registered as 9 Hotel Zulu Alpha Zulu was conducting flight at Hotel Tango 2460 from Birmingham to Malta when the aircraft took a wrong turn to the left after landing on runway 31. Uh, no, injuries were, no injuries were reported as a result of the incident. However, due to the aircraft's position uh, obstructing the runway, the te uh, technical assistance was required to tow the aircraft to the designated gate area safely. Uh, shortly after the incident, photographs appeared on social media, media showing the Boeing 737 blocking runway 31 at the airport. Uh, the aircraft involving, involved in the, instance, uh, in the incident was a 737-400 with a service history spanning 31.7 years. According to the data sourced from Planespotters.net, this particular aircraft had previously been utilised by various airlines, including British Airways, Czech Airlines, uh, NASAC Air Transport, Kalima uh, Aviation, uh, Kronos Airlines, BBAM and Aerotron between, before eventually becoming part of Air Horizons fleet. Uh, with a primary focus on ACMI, charter and ad hoc flights, uh, the airline has transported over 1.5 million passengers, uh, approximately uh, over approximately 10,000 flights spanning over 50 countries. Uh, the airline currently has a total of six 737-400 aircraft at an average age of 31.6 years, according to Planespotters.net data. So, um, I'm going to jump in here. One thing that the story didn't really make clear: um, the Malta Airport is. Um, it has a lot of dead end taxiways. So you know how most traditional airports, we have a lot of uh, parallel taxiways and everything interconnects. Um, that's actually not the case at, at Malta Airport. Everything on the southern end, or so it's got two crossing runway, almost crossing runways, but they're perpendicular runways. Everything on the southern end of the airport uh, is actually just a dead end taxiway. So what they failed to mention is that it, this is across from the terminal so they should have turned left but they instead turned right and they ended up in a dead end uh taxiway taxiway gulf is a very very short taxiway with some small hangers um so there was no room why they had to just stop and shut down is there was no room for them to go forward they couldn't turn around um and then the tail of the airplane was blocking the runway so i, I think they didn't really uh, talk about that too much. Uh, there was no graphics in, in that article. That That's why this happened is they, they literally took a right when they should have taken a left and then uh, and it was a dead end. Basically just like a uh, like a community, like a you know housing development and you just 
it's like taking a, a an articulated lorry or an 18 wheeler into a street that you can't turn around in so are you saying it's poor airport design uh not at all this is a hundred percent crew uh error yes <laughs> oh, i thought so i thought so yeah uh now so it's perfectly designed airport that's no. it yeah well this, this next uh item is not uh crew error i i don't think is it uh, no, this is uh, kind of funny. I guess it's not funny. It's funny, not funny. Uh, we were just on our on our PTUK host chat talking about how many wheels fell off airplanes this week. <laughs> um, and, and this particular one, this is a 787 Dreamliner losing its uh, nose landing gear in flight. Uh, the aircraft uh, registration 9 Victor Oscar Juliet Foxtrot operating a flight from Seoul to Taipei. Uh, according to sources, the tire pressure level had been detected as abnormal before the flight's descent. Uh, despite losing one of the nose wheels, uh, flight TR-897 landed safely on Taipei's runway 23 left, taxied to the apron without any further incident. After landing, the left nose wheel was missing, and the axle also appeared to be worn. Uh, Scoot Taiwan General Manager Victor Lee said that Scoot had decided to dispatch another airplane to Taiwan and that more information would be later. I think we have some of that amplifying information. It's unclear where the missing wheel dropped. Uh, Taiwan International Airport Corporation said that no signs of the wheel were found on the runway or taxiway. It is possible that the missing tire assembly is in the South China Sea. So good luck to them. Um, let's see, on October, or October, on June 21st, uh, operations at Vilnius Airport were temporarily suspended after a Brussels airline a320 lost its main gear tire right before lineup with the runway that airbus a320 registration oscar oscar sierra november india was scheduled to depart as flight sn 2372 from vilnius to brussels however as it was taxiing for takeoff the aircraft lost one of its left inner main gear tires before the lineup uh, following the incident operations at vilnius airport were temporarily suspended as the aircraft blocked the entrance once again to the runway uh, flight operations resumed after the aircraft was removed so lots of airplanes losing tires well you know what i'm not going to say anything lots of airbuses losing tires this week <sighs> and, um i'm no cra uh, air crash investigation investigator but i'm just saying it's just happening with all the airbuses but to be fair, no, no, no. airbus don't make the wheels or tires do they Oh, always, always with the actual technical answer. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, it's probably uh, Goodrich or something like that. BF Goodrich or yeah. Chilla. Yeah. Anyway. Uh-oh. Uh <laughs> oh, dear. We're... Oh, actually, oh, wait. Yes, yes, it's the Dreamliner, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Ah, okay. Right, yes. That is anyway, good. moving on. You've got the next story, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, somebody needs to explain that. Come on, Armando, fess up. No, 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 yeah, yeah. It was a Dreamliner. It was a Boeing. Yeah. You have me going now. It shows you how I was not following the story as closely as I should have been. It's always a test to see who's paying attention. Oh, <laughs> but I'm... Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Well, there we bridge, you're right. Okay, Bridgestone. That's, yeah. Do they still do the F1 tyres? No, they don't. No, that's uh, Pirelli uh, for the F1. Is it? Oh. Okay. Oh. I would love to fly an airplane with Pirellis. Maybe we'd get off the line quicker. <laughs> You never know. 
Yeah. You never now, know. Talk, talking of Airbus, as we were just then, uh, on the bbc.co.uk uh, website, uh, this is a record uh, aircraft purchase which has been announced at the Paris Air Show. Uh, and Indian carrier Indigo has made a record order for 500 a320 aircraft the largest single purchase agreement by any airline in commercial aviation history now, the deal announced on the first day of the paris air show is worth roughly 55 billion us dollars 43 billion pounds before any bulk order discounts uh, indigo has now an order book of 1330 aircraft with airbus it's expected to uh, to mean a stream of between deliver uh, of deliveries between 2030 and 2035, uh, the new deliveries will help uh, budget carrier Indigo lower its operating costs and imp um, improve fuel efficiency. The company says, India is a burgeoning aviation market, of course, with some analysts saying it's on track to replace China as the aerospace industry's uh, next growth frontier. The country is expected to be the fastest growing G20 economy over the next few years and has seen a significant increase in the number of first-time flyers since the pandemic. And there's still a large runway for growth. Did there. Uh, under 5% of the country's 1.4 billion people are estimated to have even ever taken a flight. And air traffic in India has been growing hugely as disposable income rises. In February, Air India, which is Indigo's rival, made headlines by placing its own order for 470 aircraft from both Airbus and Boeing. The latest deal shows that confidence is returning to the aviation industry in the wake of the pandemic, and this order from the low-cost carrier is a statement of ambition from one of the fastest-growing airlines in the world. Uh, Ryanair and, uh, um, and Saudi startup uh, Riyadh Air have uh, also recently made large aircraft orders but while airlines seem to be keen to invest in new aircraft manufacturers are struggling to build them quickly enough because supply chains remain disrupted uh, by the after effects of the covid shutdowns whilst this may be by far the most dramatic order seen so far at the paris air show it's unlikely to be the last the airliner market ground to a halt as we know during the pandemic but now carriers are making up for lost time renewing their fleets and in some cases expanding aggressively as well that's one big order, isn't it? 500 mm. um, A320s, which is the largest uh, uh, purchase agreement made by any airline. Indeed, indeed. I, sh I should imagine that, um, that uh, O'Leary is absolutely fuming by that, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, although you might say that the European and Irish markets are somewhat smaller than India on its own, probably. Well, yes, true. That, that, um, that is fair, yeah. Absolutely. But, no, I, yeah, I, I get what you mean there. Yeah. Has anyone other than other than John been to India? Uh, no, I haven't. I've never been to India. It is somewhere that it, weirdly it is it is one of those places, isn't it? And I know, I know it's not necessarily, you know, that it's often often described as 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 an eye opening experience, especially if you just step like a few streets away from like the hotel that you're staying in and things like that. I must admit, it is one of those locations that. I feel like it's like it should be on the bucket list as one place you must go to, you know, you know, for goodness sake, don't drink the water. But, you know, other than that, just sort of, you know, um, see, see, you know, to, to experience uh, it's because, it, you know, from friends I know that have been there, it is an, an, an incredible culture. Um, well, I think aside from, you know, the significant impacts of uh, world in, in world history and cultural heritage, but for an av geek. 
right? Like it's such a mysterious place. You know, we did that interview with Stuart Airy a couple months ago now, and he was flying uh, a part, well, a corporate aircraft in India. It's such a different world, right? It's a, I would love to just go hit all the airports in India and just see all the aircraft that are both flying and not flying, you know, because it's such a vast country, right? I don't think any, any of us that, you know, understand how big India is. So you've been there. Yeah. I'd love to just go on an ad, an ad geek trip of India. That sounds good to me. Shall we? Shall, shall we have a PTUK outing? Shall we? I, do, yes. I, I, I like. I assume the curries are good. <laughs> yeah. And, yes, I think they would be. They're That's... probably quite good at those. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. We we can all pull together a combination of Avios points, American Advantage miles, yeah. and and then uh, well, John can just meet us there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, so, Armando, next story is for you. Ah, speaking of uh, racking up Avios points, I'm going to put this in the I want one column. Like, I mean, Christmas is coming up. Uh, Matt is going to put up some pictures here. Is he? Beautiful airplane. Is he? Okay. Yes, he is. <laughs> it's a beautiful airplane uh, from AOPA.org. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Diamond turboprop uh, takes its first flight. It's a uh, Diamond Flight test, uh, head of flight test, Soren Peterson and senior test pilot, uh, Nico Derusis had a flight. They lasted uh, 30 minutes over uh, over in uh, Austria. They covered all the basic maneuvers, including performance handling checks. Uh, Diamond said that the aircraft met or exceeded all of its expectations. This is an all composite. They're calling it the Dark 750. It's powered by a 750 horsepower Pratt & Whitney PT6A25 Charlie. A uh, very reliable engine there, featuring a Garmin G3000 suite. Um, Diamond will be offering what they're calling a DART basic training solution that covers all phases of basic training, like ground-based training systems, uh, basic training in the aircraft, proprietary DART flight and navigation procedures uh, in a simulator, and some computer-based training. Uh, obviously, they, uh, you know, they've been working on this for a little while. None of us had heard of it. So this is, was a little bit of a surprise, and it's uh, made its public debut at the Paris Air Show 2023 just a couple weeks ago. They're uh, hoping to achieve certification for this aircraft in 2024, so very quick development timeline here. Looks like a T6 Texan, looks like a Tucano, Super Tucano, um, but Diamond has some serious engineering behind it. They make some amazing aircraft. They're almost as good as Pilatus, uh, no, maybe they're 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 equally on par. So I I want one. <laughs> let's let's go fly one. I don't know. Let's get in touch with Diamond and go do a test flight somewhere. Excellent. Sounds like fun. Beautiful airplane. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it is blow it's blowing my mind a little bit. Uh, with I'm just going to pop that picture back up there. I, I I've, it's got like this sort of like fighter jet feel about it. You know, with the two seats and stuff like that. The echo, the echoed screens and and all that kind of thing. So the same same information available to sort of both pilot and co-pilot, for want of a better word. It's uh, yeah, it's a fascinating I think it's, layout. I think this is a proven design, both from the T6 Texan and the Tucano, mm. and uh, actually some other aircraft. There's a uh, black shape. Um, the, yeah, the uh, Pilatus PC9, I think Black Shape, uh, Gabriel has a similar design. Uh, the difference is Diamond is marketing this to the public. But it's going straight to the public, so you can buy one and basically feel like you're a fighter pilot. Nice. 
Nice. Which I'm all about. Well, yes, quite. I, I mean, it's it's not like you don't have a background in it, of course. You know, all this sort of like. Did you ever do any crazy like sort of like dog fighting type sort of stuff, Armando? Or 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 will you have to shoot me if I ask that question? Uh, no, not in the. I, you know, I had a I had a tanker transport rotary wing powered lift path, which is not super exciting in the military. Right. Like you don't get to do all that kind of crazy stuff you know obviously we did formation stuff and we did none, uh, none of the pew pew that sort of you did, did, didn't do anything yeah no. you do basic aerobatics yeah. you do basic like you know in trail uh, uh <laughs> but yeah not a lot of not not a whole lot of pew 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 oh yeah. sorry it's all right the uh the the, the beverage of choice is kicking in <laughs> however i got a buddy that works out in sky combat ace this is not a plug for them but like sky combat ace out in las vegas and they have a fleet of extras and maybe some game birds or something like that. But they basically give you the whole combat experience where you get to do that. And, uh, you know, maybe so, I'll go So Mark's asked, asking an interesting question here. You may not know the answer to this one, Armando, but he's saying, does it have, an eject- does it have ejection seats? Nope. The diamond one does not. Okay, right. So if it, if it goes down, so do you. <laughs> essentially but uh, uh, apparently they're integrating it J- john is saying at the moment that it's, uh, it doesn't at the moment but it is something they're working on essentially so yeah. uh, when it, uh, it, it when the, the mark ii will say um uh, no idea of time scales but apparently it will eventually have ejection seats uh, i can only imagine that if they're going to market it to the military at some point their militaries will require ejection seats but right, right now it doesn't Right now, it's just a fun toy, essentially. Which I'm all about. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, we'll move on then. Uh, it's, uh, what was, sorry, what was that? You're saying top speeds there, John. Sorry. Top speed of 265 yeah. knots. I, I don't really understand well, knots. Is that fast? It's fast. Yeah. It's fast. It's, it is fast, yeah. Just shy of 500 kilometers an hour if you're if you're special like me. Uh, and uh, what was the what was that you were mentioning? G forces there, John. Plus plus negative plus six negative force. So explain yeah. to me what that is, Armando, um, because again that's not something I you understand. Can, that hurts. You can, that hurts. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. That is enough to make your lunch come up. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, yeah. No, that, it, You'll that, know that's... you're doing it. Essentially, that's what you're. Saying. Yeah, yeah. That's a pack. That's a maximum of six positive G's. So I think, uh, for reference, when you do, if you were to really, really pull uh, on a general aviation aircraft, you may get to two G's. If Ooh. you're doing something like Reno Air Racing, you have to demonstrate that you can pull four G's. So doing six Gs, that's basically military level maneuvering or aerobatic, professional aerobatic level maneuvering. And then negative four Gs, that's that's enough to make you, you know, red out. So right. okay. um, nosebleed territory. Yeah, <laughs> okay. that's fully, it just means it's fully aerobatic. And then, and then uh, turbine engines like the PT-6 don't have to, it, it doesn't matter if it's mm-hmm. upside down or right side up. Yeah. Um, it'll, it'll operate equally in, in any orientation. So uh, the aircraft is fully aerobatic. I think, I think part of the flight envelope. I don't want to go anywhere near. <laughs> <laughs> Quite absolutely. Yeah, if Nev if Nev hits, uh, well, actually, you know, you you have an accelerometer on your iPhone if you mm. have an iPhone, and I'll bet you if uh, if Nev feels more than one point two G's while he's sitting in one A, mm, he's furious. <laughs> strongly worded letter. Yeah, we, we are. Yeah, yeah. indeed. L- lining up for short final a bit late. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'll tell you what, uh, genuinely though, I mean, somebody who I reckon who would, who would enjoy a good flight in this other than Armando, of course, is, uh, I don't know if you remember, guys, obviously that video that uh, Alex Robinson very kindly shared with us, where he yes. was doing his acrobatics and stuff, I bet he'd love a little go in that, in that little plane, I bet. I bet. Oh, I, I, yeah. I bet if we had one painted in PTUK colours, we we could probably charge uh, £1,500 a ride or something like that. Maybe £1,000 wow, a ride. okay, right, yes. I mean, how much does one of these cost again? <laughs> oh, shoot, I'm sure it'll be two and a half million, right. I imagine. Okay. Right, okay, right, okay, all right, lovely. Never mind. Hmm. Uh, I can see on. John. John's doing the research right now, but right. anyway. <laughs> Get Speaking going. of general aviation, uh, Nev's got the last uh, commercial story here. Yeah, really good one. This it's the uh, all about the Smithsonian uh, uh, Museum hosting the GA Fly, and it's on the AOPA.org. And it says that hundreds of children and their parents were entertained on the 17th of June by dozens of general aviation pilots who landed their aircraft at the busy Washington Dulles International Airport in Virginia Dull. and connected to the adjacent Smithsonian. National Air and Space Museum's Uwe Harzi Center to display the aircraft for all to see, touch or to sit in. Uh, more than 55 um, single and twin-engine aircraft, commercial and military, and a handful of helicopters were parked on the ramp outside a hangar that houses the Space Shuttle Discovery, Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird, and other significant aircraft from World War II, Vietnam, the Cold War, and the Space Age. The pilots from Alabama to Wisconsin flew a variety of aircraft to the event uh, with clearance to land at the 11,500-foot runway one right after first navigating the Washington, D.C. special flight rules area. Uh, air traffic controllers deftly work the smaller aircraft in with commercial airlines, uh, landing at one of the uh, airfield's three parallel or one crosswind runway on a crystal blue sky Saturday morning. The husband and wife team of Kathy McGurran and uh, Dan Metz travelled from Denver to help marshal arrivals. From there, Bradford Payne took the handoff and pointed pilots into position on the ramp beside the huge hangar. As soon as the gates opened to the public, hundreds of children uh, towed their parents along, or vice versa, as they sprinted to the airlines displaying uh, during the Innovations of Flight Day at Museum. Mums, dads and grandparents lifted children up over landing gear and wing walks so that the youth could experience what it's like to sit in a cockpit, manipulate a yoke or control stick, or learn how to read the flight instruments. Uh, Cozy Mark IV pilot Bob Bittner of Wisconsin and uh, Russ Merricks uh, of Alabama each flew hundreds of miles to join the uh, celebration of flight and spent several hours explaining the nuances of their rear engine, retractable nose gear, composite home-built to enthusiastic youths. Uh, the throwback 1958 paint scheme uh, of uh, pilot John uh, Rezanoku's uh, 2022 Cessna 182T uh, garnered a lot of attention, as did a bright yellow trail, a tail dragger converted Cessna 150 commuter dubbed Woodstock flown in by Melissa Kelly and Edward Sigali. Uh, Beechcraft T35 mental owner Randy Devere, uh, blue, his blue and white military trainer was placed near the vending area, so he was peppered with questions and some drinks, hopefully, as well. Uh, women uh, Air Force uh, service pilots, advocate, author, and recently uh, certificated pilot Erin Miller took up a position, position next to the Grumman AA5A Cheetah 
that she flew in with Leon Jackler and she said that the event was not only fun but it was also a great success plus she said it was pretty cool to answer yes when attendees asked if she was a pilot wow that must take taking some coordination with the airport I would imagine mm. on a normal busy day at Dallas uh, trying to get all those uh, folks in. This, in the this is where um, the airplane geeks uh, quite often have their meeting, meetings. Yes, exactly. The Uber yeah. Hardy um, Museum, yeah, if my memory serves. Yeah, yeah it's a great, yeah. uh, great museum. I've been there twice now, mm. uh, and uh, yeah, a really good day out. Um, every time you go there, you, you you miss something from last time. So it's a, it's a great place to go. Yeah, yeah. love that. Yeah, it sounds like uh, Micah saying that Hillel and JD were uh, part of this this year. This is essentially like. Heathrow opening up for general aviation traffic to come in there for a mm. couple hours. And then, I mean, it's, it is pretty significant. Plus it's such a cool experience to be able to land a Bonanza or a experimental aircraft on a, you know, I think Washington Dallas. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or a, or a brand new diamond dart 750, which yeah. uh, in PT UK colors on a 10,000 foot runway that you would never otherwise go into. Yeah, no, quite indeed. Uh, needless to say that, uh, Yes, as I say, John has been deciding. He, John's just bought a car, I should say, and now he's changing his mind and thinking about swapping it out for one of these instead. I think uh, it's a great well, idea. I, I, feel, I feel like we should have a conversation about how much you pay for your car, because uh, I, I feel that's I feel that's too much uh, if you, if you can happily swap it for one. But there we go. Never mind. Uh, you'll have a lot of fun together. Yeah. So Armando's off to, off on a road trip uh, to go and yeah. t- teach uh, John how to fly it. There we go. Well, it's got two fun. seats, and I'm sure we could do something for the dog too. Okay. Right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Do we think the dog will mind being flown? Mm. Not upside down. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, not upside down. Uh, you know, I, I know Lenny's quite chilled, but blimey. Okay, uh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, that was guys. Um, we are actually right on time. We uh, Nev actually reached out to me earlier this week and said, "Hey, take a look inside the PTUK." Um, uh, what is it? Podcast at plaintalkinguk.com email address. We actually had some really good feedback from one of our listeners. Uh, Matt, if you're ready, let's uh, play that out. Yep. Hey guys, this week we received a listener feedback uh, email that I thought was really important uh, to address. Um, now this in particular individual uh, had emailed a, f- a few times uh, before their start of their ATPL ground school and during the training but they were emailing as they were approaching the ex- the uh, end of their exam week for modules two and three. Um, at this point, they actually had some opinions to share. Uh, for me, it's important to include feedback like this. This is a little bit more realistic take on what it takes to do this. And especially nowadays, we're talking about how there are so many opportunities to become a pilot, how it's a great time to become a pilot. But there are still some challenges. There are certainly some challenges to to pursuing this career field, especially if you are later in life, you're a career changer, um, or you just kind of didn't grow up with it. Um, so I thought it was important to to talk about this feedback and maybe some solutions. Um, this, is, this is from a real student pilot perspective for someone who is in the trenches right now trying to get their, uh, their training done. Um, so I'll read a couple excerpts from the email. Um, so the first excerpt says everyone tells you how hard atpls are but i don't actually believe that the content is that hard it's just the sheer volume of it and the fact that examiners are clearly trying to catch you out on their wording oh and questions are translated from the french question writers and are always horrendous as literal translations from french just do not work 
And if you see a French question, it's a lottery if you get it right. Um, this kind of struck with me because uh, it's similar here in the U.S. with our our exams. Now, as as we've talked about on the show, it is very different. We for your ATP license here, your ATP certificate, you only take one written test. So you study a bunch, a bunch, a bunch. It's a 1,500 question bank that you have to study and essentially memorize, but essentially you got one test to worry about. That is very different over in Europe where there are, I believe, 13 tests. Um, that's just for your ATP. Um, so it is also a problem here in the US in, uh, in terminology a lot of the terminology is, in fact, outdated. Uh, I remember on my ATP exam, I had questions about NDBs, right? We don't, nobody even uses NDBs anymore. Uh, the weight and balance problems were from, I believe, a Dash 8 and a DC9, uh, something like that. So the, the performance problems on the, on the test were pretty outdated. A lot of the navigation questions particularly were, were severely outdated. Now here in the US, there is a process where people can um, essentially highlight those questions to the FAA uh, testing uh, department and they flag those questions. They may not be graded, um, but they're still on the test. So you still have to memorize them. You still have to go through them there. <clears throat> or, or if nothing else, they just take a lot of bandwidth. And, and for this individual with the tests over there in Europe, it does seem like there are some disparities with with uh, language barriers, things like that, or really subjects that, you know, why does a helicopter pilot need to know about supersonic speeds going across the, the Atlantic or something like that? But I think that's, that is most uh, federal or governmental regulators where they're just so slow to catch up with technology that it can be a real challenge so I don't know that I have a solution for that, but it's just, again, kind of highlighting some of the challenges that are that are out there if you're trying to get into this career field or you're in your private pilot uh, stage and then you're trying to move up to this ATP level. Another challenge that this individual brought up was the cost. Now, this is no, none of us are strangers that, to the fact that becoming a pilot, becoming a professional pilot costs a lot of money. Again, it's a little bit different here in the U.S. While it does cost us a lot of money, we don't have to pay for individual exam. We, we do, but we only have to pay for the one, right? So um, there, this is specific to the U.K. Uh, this individual was saying that each exam costs 95 pounds, and over the course of 13 exams, that can be pretty costly, not counting um, any retakes that you have to do. And in addition to that, you have to go somewhere to take the exam. So you're talking another 100 pounds a night, uh, for a hotel, assuming that you're going to want to get there, get a good night's sleep, and maybe take the test and then drive home. If it is somewhere you can drive home, maybe you have to spend two nights there. So all in all, in addition to the 100, to the 100 pounds for each test, you got to pay the, the fuel to get there, the transportation, the lodging. Um, and this individual actually brought up something that I didn't even think about that was um, CAA and EASA exams those over two separate weeks in two separate locations. So everything that we just talked about, that cost has doubled. And then um, and then if you wanna study like I do, I use here uh, in the US, I use Shepard Air and I'm using Shepard Air to get my flight instructor. Um, so that's a study uh, question bank where you can essentially, you know, at least be familiarized, if not, if nothing else, memorize the questions. Um, that 
is an additional uh, cost. Um, for our U.S. listeners, I wanted to just kind of highlight what it is that our friends over in Europe have to do. So the ATPL exam subjects, keep in mind, each one of these is 100, 100 pounds at least, and plus lodging and transportation. They have an air law exam, operation procedures, human performance and limitations, meteorology, VFR communications, IFR communications, principles of flight, general navigation, mass and balance, or weight and balance, performance, flight planning and monitoring, radio navigation, aircraft general knowledge, which is airframe systems, power plant, and electric, aircraft general knowledge, which is instrumentation. And once you sit for your first exam, you only have 18 months to complete all of your exams. That is a lot of subject matter. And I've seen these books. They are they're hefty. It's a hefty amount of information. So aside from the cost, there's the challenge of time. You you know, a lot of us aren't doing this right off the bat, right after school. So we have careers and you're, you're trying to balance all these exams and all this studying, uh, balance that with your life, your family, your job, uh, the thing that's paying for, for you to be able to do this transition. Speaking of that, the self-funding, it is hard. It is hard for anybody, whether you're in the U.S., South Africa, in the U.K., or Germany. Self-funding flight training is hard. Um, we, I think, generally talk about that 100,000 pound baseline or average maybe in the UK to become a pilot. From everything that I was seeing online, it could be as low as 50,000 pounds or as high as 110,000 pounds. That's in you know, 2022 numbers. Um, there's also a modular route, and I'm trying to actually reach out to a professional pilot who kind of has some of this on their website. They've actually written a book on it. We'll include the link to that book, but uh, I'm going to save it for maybe a week or two to see if this individual gets back to us um, because they have a, a website that is really good about um, how to finance the training and some mistakes that we'll talk about here in a second. So in addition to that, there's integrated courses for pilot training in the UK. Those are generally between 70,000 pounds and 110,000 pounds, depending on the provider that you choose. The main costs for all of these are your medical, your private pilot license, which is about 12,000 pounds. Your night rating is another 1,500 pounds. Your hours building to get to the point where you can get your commercial and your ATPL, that's about 12,500 pounds, again, 2022 dollars. Your ATPL exams via distance learning plus, or maybe uh, going to the facilities like we were just talking about, that's 5,000 pounds. The commercial pilot license, 7,500 pounds. Multi-engine instrument rating, that's 20,000 pounds. Your MCC course is 8,000 pounds. Total cost at the bare minimum in 2022 numbers, 67,300 pounds. That's a lot of money. Um, one of the, uh, we'll get into how, or I'll get into as far as I know, right? Again, being an American, talking about a, a, a European subject, some ways to mitigate those costs. Um, one of the things that this individual brought up was, was diversity. And all of us are, I think, pro-diversity programs. However, I think we're all kind of talking about how there may be something wrong in the diversity system. Perhaps in addition to the racial, ethnic, and gender diversity hiring programs, or uh, maybe not hiring programs, but training programs, Perhaps there should be consideration for economic diversity, right? So regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, 
uh, take into account the individual's economic background. And maybe that should be addressed in some of these um, outreach programs because it is incredibly difficult for any individual. Um, Surely there there are barriers to the career field uh, based on race, gender, and ethnicity, among other things. but certainly we keep talking about the, the most insurmountable barrier to entry into this career field is that is that money barrier. So maybe we can have an educated discussion about economic diversity and people's economic backgrounds and helping, um, helping people f- from a variety of, of economic backgrounds achieve their dream of becoming a pilot. I know for me, the people who I like to fly with in the right seat or the left seat are people who have life experience. And this is very hard. It's hard for somebody later in life to, to career change into this, into this aviation industry. For me, um, while I love flying with uh, younger individuals, people in their 20s that have maybe just come out of training, the people that I actually like to fly with and the people that we tend to look for in corporate are actually people with a little bit more life experience, right? Maybe they have families, they've got other careers, they've known successes, they know failures. And it is to those individuals that it is most challenging to find the money, the time, and the life work training balance to get into this career field. So it's an inter- an interesting conundrum that, that those are the people that I want to fly with, but those are the people that actually have the most barriers to get into this career field. Um, so, um, you know, maybe we can have an educated discussion on that. Everybody that comes into this career field, almost everybody, right, 80% of people have this goal of becoming an airline pilot. Well, there are certainly different avenues to build hours, uh, things that you can do as a commercial pilot without having an ATPL. Um, and, and don't quote me on the specifics, you know, the specific regulations in Europe, um, but there are uh, just like here in the U.S., there are plenty of opportunities for people to get those hours where somebody else is paying for the flight time um, as opposed to you just paying it out of pocket. You know, these things are like air taxis, there are survey flying, banner flying here in the U.S., medical evacuation, corporate like I do. Um, there are plenty of opportunities out there, but there's also plenty of pilots looking for these op- opportunities. So sometimes it can be a little bit of a unicorn job to get into some of these things um, to help somebody uh, and a company or some other organization defray the cost of, of getting to a professional pilot you know, point in their career. We always talk about air cadets. Now, obviously, this only applies to if you're younger. Um, air cadets have the experience flights, the gliding scholarships, powered flying scholarships. Those are you know, 12 hours of, of flight time. Um, there's gliding courses, local uh, gliding clubs that sometimes offer scholarships. Another way to defray some of these costs is you can work at a flight school and uh, get paid in hours. I know when I was working out at Ruffham or flying out at Ruffham, um, there was a couple of young men out there that were working. They were washing airplanes, fueling airplanes, uh, mowing the, the, the parking area, mowing the taxiways, mowing the runway, and they were working in return for flight hours. Um, or experience, because sometimes I just throw them in the right seat of a, of a piper or something like that. Um, there's university air squadrons, university gliding clubs. Those are other options to help defray some of these costs, at least uh, 
get some experience. The Honorable Company of Air Pilots, they offer some scholarships. And then the Air League also has scholarships for uh, powered gliding, ATPL exam scholarships, MCC courses, UAS courses, scholarships. Um, everything that I just said, again, just it, it's great if you're young. It does not help career changers. Career changers or later in life adopters into this uh, career field, now you're talking about loans, credit cards. So how do you finance this? Most of us get loans. Um, you... You have to be careful, at least, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure how the schemes work in the U.S., but here in the U.K., or in the U.K., here in the U.S., there's a couple different ways you can get loans. You can get home equity loans if you own a house. You uh, probably should stay away from secured loans, right? So, you know, next thing you know, your flight school goes out of business and you lose all your money. And then now you have to give up your car to the, you know, in a court settlement or something like that. But... Um, there's always family loans, right? You can just beg, borrow, and steal from your family and treat them like a bank in that you will repay them. Um, credit, credit is an option. It is a way. It's not a way that any of us uh, recommend. So, um, but it is entirely possible. One of the biggest challenges of putting flight training on credit is, again, if you get to a point where your flight school is no longer in business or you have to stop your flight training, you still owe the credit cards uh, companies. So that's uh, not necessarily the, the best way, but it is a way. Again, it's just hustling, trying to get out there so you can get to a point when you can start um, paying back your credit. Now, uh, kcthepilot.com. So KC is actually who we're trying to get on to the show. Um, he actually outlines on his website a couple different mistakes that pilots do. Um, mistake number one is do not take pilot training loans on a secured loan basis. Mistake number two says when planning and lending any repayment, do not be optim too optimistic in your salary, i.e., I'll get a job straight away making 5,000 pounds a month as a first officer, and I'll get my command in three years. That may be the industry right now, but that is certainly not an assumption that you can make that that will be your path. Uh, mistake number three is to not make use of flying scholarship opportunities and jumping straight into pilot training loans. Mistake number four, not considering government-funded pilot training, as in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. Um, while that takes a full career change, you have to meet the very specific criteria. They may or may not be accepting pilots, but that is certainly a way to get to a professional pilot standpoint. But, of course, you are serving your country and there's the risks associated with that. Uh, mistake number five, being careful not to use 0% credit cards as a bank loan to become a pilot because if, you're, if your training gets delayed, um, th that 0% uh, interest rate is not forever. And next thing you know, you'll be hit with a you know, 10, 15, 20% interest rate on all the things that you owed from the past year or two years even. And that suddenly becomes a pretty big bill that you may not be able to pay off. Uh, mistake number six, not being, not speaking to anyone if you get into financial difficulties from pilot training loans. Honesty is huge in this industry, and that includes um, highlighting challenges, personal challenges, um, both financially, personally, emotionally, uh, physically. Uh, I think honesty is, is pretty important in this career field. And then mistake number seven is being in a rush to become a pilot. Um, there are certainly other flying opportunities and possibilities, as I stated above. Um, so, um, 
you know, this is, it's, again, I just wanted to talk about this feedback because it is really important. There are some serious challenges. There are some, seri uh, some similarities between the challenges of getting into this career field here in the U.S. as well as in the U.K., as well as the rest of the world, you know, Australia. Um, they're, but they're, they are not insurmountable challenges. There is always a way to get to yes. Um, I think luck, hope, uh, perseverance, dedication, and support from family uh, go a long way. But, uh, but you know, hope and support from family just doesn't pay the bill. So, um, again, I, I feel with this individual, I was in a hybrid approach where I had some things paid for, some things not paid for. I was in the military, but I was enlisted, so I was paid for my PPL and, all, and an instrument, all that stuff on my own at the time. Um, but everybody has a totally different path on how they end up here in a professional aviation role. And it's just, um, you know, it's, it's uh, really important to recognize your own personal situation, but also find a mentor to help you through some of the stuff. And hopefully this show um, and some of the links that we're going to put uh, in the show notes and maybe get KC on the show, but there's plenty of websites too, can help link individuals in their specific countries to, um, you know, to get to where they want to be. So I hope this helps a little bit and I encourage you guys to all write in with your personal experiences, your personal challenges, your success stories, and uh, we'd love to talk about them on the show. Um, well, guys, first of all, I want to thank uh, Jake for sending in the feedback. I want to thank Nev for passing that on to me. Um, for me, it was eye-opening because I'm not going to say that it's easy for anyone in any country, right? I'd, I'd, getting to the professional pilot career path is difficult wherever you are, and it's expensive wherever you are. But as I was kind of doing some research for this particular feedback, I, I guess it didn't, I didn't really understand how difficult it was, uh, especially for uh, a career changer later in life, you know, you want to go into this type, type of thing. Um, so it was eye opening to me how, how challenging and we were chatting there off air, how we'd have all these stories about how it's ra rainbows and roses, you know, it's a great time to be a pilot. It is. Uh, but it does not make it any easier to be a pilot no. there just because there's those opportunities there. You still got to get to the, to the front door. Um, so uh, also while we were in there, you know, after I recorded this, which was a couple of days ago now, um, we realized that Casey, the pilot was actually on the show. He was on episode 353, but uh, we did reach out to him to come back on the show and, and speak specifically to this topic about how to get through your, your pilot training uh, in Europe. He's got a book. It's on amazon.co.uk. It's called How to Become a Pilot in Europe, the Complete Training Guide. Uh, John's got the links. Um, if you've got an Audible membership, it is actually free. So it's an audiobook as well as a Kindle edition. Um, and it kind of goes into how to pass those um, ATPL theory exa exams, how to uh, some cost saving tips, how to get through your MCC course. That's, I know that's a redundant, your MCC mc course <laughs> your multi-crew course um but uh yeah it's just you know it's it's a struggle and a hustle for all of us to get where we are and everybody's got their own journey um i'm really glad that jake sent in the feedback and i 
also really interested in hearing um, our other listeners' feedback on how they ended up. You know, you can send in audio feedback, you can send in video feedback, you can send in written feedback, because I think as we're trying to push more people into this career field, um, it's important to understand everybody's different journeys, um, how they I ended think up. It'd be interesting to um, ask you, Armando, uh, what is the difference between uh, a modular course and an integrated one? Yeah, so I think um, from what I'm understanding, I, I think it's similar here in the US if you were to start. Um, so we have a school like ATP, right? ATP is just the name of the school, but uh, it's, it's a zero to hero type course. You pay, I don't even know what ATP is here in the US, but I think it's like 85 grand upfront and they guarantee you that you're gonna take, they're gonna take you from zero, some no private pilot, no flying experience, all the way up to uh, being a flight instructor, uh, CFII an instrument instructor, and having enough hours to, through a partnership program, get to a regional airline. So that's, um, you know, it's an all-inclusive. I think the modular model tends to be what we here in the U.S. would be Part 61, which is basically just hodgepodging your training together. I've got enough money to get my PPL. Okay, then I'm going to fly for a little bit. Then I've got enough money to go do an instrument rating course. And I've got enough money I've saved up. Um, and now I can go do a commercial course. Um, now I work more, you know, I have a life, I have a family. Now I can go buy block hours to get to the requisite flight time experience to get my ATP, which is, you know, no joke, it's 1500 hours here in the US. It's I think 250 in the UK, I'm not, don't quote me on that. It's significantly lower to get your ATP in the, your frozen ATP, yeah. But here in, we don't have a, we have a restricted ATP, but that's for military pilots. And then we have a little bit of hours reduction. If you've gone to a university that, um, that specializes in aviation, you get an aviation degree, but for the rest of us, it's 1500 hours. So um, basically the modular approach is, I, I'm gonna build money, save money and do a chunk of it so uh, the uh, Casey uh, Kudzi's book, he, uh, he basically outlines the modular pilot training approach. So, yeah, amazing. They're very difficult. So. Well, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, another mortgage, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah. That's what we're talking about, the cost of doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And how many exams there are, certainly in the UK, um, yeah. to, to do it. Amazing. Easily a hundred thousand mm. pounds. Um, yeah, the the figures that I found were any anywhere from fifty thousand pounds if you're incredibly lucky, all the way up to a hundred and almost one hundred twenty thousand pounds there in the UK to to get to your ATPL. Wow. So, yes. Anyway. Yes, indeed. Uh, not just pilots for the uh, feedback, by the way. Anyone who's working in aviation, we'd love to hear your stories as well, even if you're just sort of involved uh, behind the scenes. Me, personally, I would find that far more interesting than all this plane rubbish, uh, finding out what's going on behind the scenes and stuff. Even if you work at Weatherspoons, I want to hear all about it. Uh, <laughs> please, please do get in, in touch. Because actually, I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? I'm in the modern-day airport. Uh, what's actually happening out on the airfield is such a small part of the operation these days, isn't it? So if, you, if you're if you involved in aviation in any way at all, we would love to hear from you. We really would. Uh, when we had that story earlier about Ryanair, you know, looking for uh, 
technical jobs. I would love to know, like we haven't had any dispatchers on the show. We haven't had uh, people in operations on the show. We've had a lot of pilots. Um, we're still working on getting more cabin crew on the on the show. So I guess aside, other than Peter as an engineer, you know, we've we'd love to find all these different branches of aviation. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Well, speaking of behind the scenes, shall we uh, talk a little bit about Ukraine, Matt? If you're ready, let's uh, hit that military button. I love it. I think I just made the mistake of looking over at the chat, the chat room, and there's something about children and pints of scotch, uh, something about not deserving puppies. So we're just going to jump into the military stuff. Uh, that is just a little teaser. Join us on YouTube Live. You can join the chat room. You sometimes you pay attention to the show. Sometimes you don't pay attention to the show. Um, okay. So this uh, this first military story is just a bit of a hodgepodge uh, summary on Ukraine. We haven't talked about Ukraine, uh, at least not on the show. Uh, but the, it looks like uh, the first story is from Reuters.com. It looks like the, uh, that Ukraine plans to send several dozen combat pilots uh, for training to fly F-16s. Uh, Ukrainian Air Force spokesman uh, Yuri Inat said uh, last Friday that the Western allies are prepared, are preparing the necessary training programs. Um, obviously, Ukraine's been waiting for this uh, for these news, right? For getting F-16s or something like it. Um, they've launched their long-awaited counteroffensive. Uh, NATO members, Netherlands and Denmark are leading efforts by international coalitions to train pilots and support staff. Obviously, as we were just saying, it's not just pilots. You got to train all the maintenance crews, all the engineers, all the operations staff um, with the ultimate goal of getting some F-16s over to Ukraine. Uh, Dutch Defense Minister Kajsa Olengren said uh, to Reuters this week that training Ukrainian pilots to fly F-16s could begin as soon as this summer. She said that the aim would uh, be to have a training program fully operational within six months. Denmark, which is where the flight simulators are, is a possible location to host this program. Uh, there was another news article from uh, UKRinform.net that the Danish government is indeed ready to transfer F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine, but only if the, U uh, the US, which obviously produces these aircraft, uh, approves this step. Um, acting D uh, Danish Defense Minister Trolls Lund Polsen said that Denmark would support the transfer of jets to Ukraine, but this would only happen if the United States approves. Um, a different military story from, uh, or sorry, different article from military.com speaking at uh, the Paris Air Show this week. Uh, what, uh, one of the demo pilots, U.S. Air Force Captain David Spicy Brown, uh, F-16 pilots said that training generally takes about a year for American military pilots. It's not clear how long it would take to train to train Ukrainian pilots to fly the aircraft. According to him, he said that actually flying the jet is incredibly easy. Uh, it's all the other stuff that goes along with the flying. Uh, and that's uh, Brown is an instructor pilot with over a thousand hours in the air, in the aircraft who's stationed at Spengdalum Air Base in Germany. He told the Associated Press that you don't have to worry about it going out of control. The main thing is to be able to work the sensors, being able to work the radar, other systems, the flight management systems. Um, and of course, uh, you know, President Biden here in the U.S. announced uh, 
at the uh, summit, the G7 summit, that the U.S. would allow some shipment of uh, F-16s to Ukraine and help provide training, although still no official plans have been uh, officially released, at least. Um, and then lastly, uh, related to Ukraine from AIN Online Aviation Information Network, uh, even though Ukraine currently only possesses older fighter jets, older Soviet-era air defense batteries for longer-range intercepts of Russian aircraft, uh, the Russian Aerospace Forces, or the VKS, has uh, lost some of its most advanced aircraft. Most estimates indicate that by uh, this past April, Russia had seen 70 fixed-wing combat aircraft down, including 11 Su-30s, uh, 18 or more Su-34s, and uh, an unknown number, but the greatest losses have been with the Su-25 uh, aircraft. The Su-34 is the most expensive aircraft of all the different Sukhoi models in service with the Russian Air Force. Um, it's also the aircraft with the lowest production rate. Uh, in the year before the Ukraine invasion, Russia had only produced 12 of these per year. Um, it was meant to replace the swing wing Su-24. The Su-34 was a high priority item in the future infrastructure of the Russian forces, but according to some assessments, only 70 of them remain in service and uh, of the Su-24s with the losses of the Su-34, the Russian Air Forces are probably going to keep the 24 for a little bit longer. Uh, and of course, the production of aircraft replacement aircraft has slowed as many other, other Russian weapon systems have due to sanctions imposed by all the countries in the world by now. Uh, banning the importation of uh, electronic components um, and and pretty any pretty any manufacturing materials that are not inter internal to Russia right now. So uh, all of these production lines have has pretty much slowed or stopped, and uh, there's no replacements. and And Ukraine potentially getting F-16s could be that that kind of uh, turn in the fight that Ukraine is looking for, and the the rest of the world is looking for. Um, so, again, we kind of keep waiting. We'll see what happens with the F-16s, but it sounds like everything is uh, nearing that transition of aircraft. Um, so, yeah. just an interesting question, if you don't mind, Armando. I mean, is six months a realistic goal for setting up a complete training program uh, for a military aircraft? I mean, is there a precedent for this sort of uh, wartime upskilling in, in modern sure. times? Sure. Sure. I mean, um, look at any modern conflict, World War II, uh, Korea, Vietnam, uh, there's conflicts over there in Europe that, let me, let me tell you, the, the, the will of a nation and the drive of a military member mm. are able, makes them able to do amazing things mm. and and uh i think so remember these aren't new pilots they're they're already trained combat pilots right. so all they're doing is really transition training so into the f-16 type rating basically essentially i guess for one of them yeah, yeah essentially right and that's what that uh, captain brown was talking about the airplane itself is it difficult to fly no it's just managing all the information that's coming at you mm. um so so yeah, it's not like they're taking a brand new pilot, you know, like we did in World War II, where you go into a steerman. Next thing you know, you're in a T6, and the next thing you know, you're in a P51, and in a matter of you know four months' time, uh, we are the, uh, Ukraine is sending some of their best pilots, um, their best combat pilots, 
to training in the F-16. And uh, um, I'm, I have no doubt that six months is more than adequate for them to adequately fly the airplane and uh, make a, a significant difference. Indeed, indeed. Okay, another question in the chat room from Mark Priestley. Armando, why are the uh, telegramming, uh, why are we telegramming our intention? This only gives them the advantage. Surely silence is key to surprise uh, uh, be in no doubt. I think there's very little surprise in any of this complex. So uh, I think most information is well known. I think mm -hmm. we here on the show are reporting something that's... Uh, already been in the plans you know by the time we're we're airing it out it's probably old news anyways as far yeah, as uh, as far as the military itself goes but I, I guarantee you that these conversations have been happening for a long long time and i don't know that russia would be surprised when this when when this actually happens yeah now the actual transfer of aircraft into the country i bet you that's probably going to be a pretty um well-guarded uh secret until until the day it happens and then you know with social media and the modern media coverage of uh conflicts like this yeah then uh, we'll we'll know they'll know we'll know everybody will know yeah yeah, so, yeah, yeah. indeed okay so we'll move on to the next story then if we may armando and uh, i'll take this one it's uh airandspaceforces.com is the website and the headline is KC-135s pull off monumental air bridge to get scores of aircraft to exercise in Europe. Air Defender 23, the German-led exercise uh, air exercise that is the largest in NATO's history, kicked off on the 12th of June with roughly 100 of the 250 participating aircraft coming from Air International Guard units across the US and just getting all of those USAF planes across the Atlantic Ocean presented quite the unique challenge. Many of the US aircraft participating in Air Defender fighters are like uh, like the F-35, the F-15, F-16 and the A-10 which often do not have enough gas to cross an ocean on their own. That meant units like 128th Air Refueling Wing of the Wisconsin Air uh, National Guard had to step in with its KC-135s to ensure the aircraft can keep flying without having to land. Air Defender will test that integration through a fictional scenario in which an alliance of Eastern European countries invades Germany, triggering an international response to put back the, um, uh, the imaginary uh, belligerents. The uh, exercise has been in the making since before Russia launched a full-scale invasion of the Ukraine in 2022, but officials hope it could send a strong message of NATO air power and solidarity as the conflict rages on. Uh, NATO's largest air combat exercise uh, ever has now got underway. The largest air combat exercise in NATO's history, Air Defender 2023, officially got underway yesterday, uh, bringing together 25 nations and NATO. The exercise features a strong US military presence with the US Air National Guard providing nearly half of the aircraft involved. AD-23, which seeks to test the joint responsiveness of Allied Air Forces in a crisis situation. The uh, Bundeswehr indicates some uh, comes from as Russia's all-out war with Ukraine has left the issue of European security of paramount importance to the US and Allies. AD-23 is scheduled 
to take place between June 12th uh, up to the 23rd. Uh, Air Germany, which has been largely responsible for organising the event, has planned AD23 since 2018. In all, almost 10,000 personnel and more than 250 aircraft from across the participating countries, including Germany, the US, the UK, France and Japan, are all involved. The more the, the more than 250 allied aircraft of various kinds involved in AD23, including various fighters, transports and tankers, are stationed at six locations across Germany, with the air exercises being carried out mainly over three areas of airspace connected to Schwelzlig uh, 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 in Wundorfs and uh, Lechfeld. Uh, daily missions will, with round trips to forward operating locations, will take place in Eastern Europe as well, uh, according to uh, Bundeswehr. Uh, upwards of 60 aircraft from Germany are taking part in the exercise, while the largest cohort of aircraft, around 100 of them, comes from the US. Uh, the ANG has sent the majority of those 100 aircraft to Germany alongside approximately 2,600 airmen from 42 states. ANG units began arriving in Germany earlier in June for AD23. Various training missions began involving aircraft with the different participating nations. The F-A-18 Hornets of the Finnish Air Force began training missions with the Luftwaffe Typhoons. For example, Finland, which only recently joined NATO on the 4th of April, has deployed four of those aircraft for AD-23. I'll go back to Mark's comment in the chat room yeah. about telegramming and telegraphing intentions. Yeah. That's what, there you go. Yeah, so yeah, this yeah. is an exercise like this with uh, 60 aircraft or 100 aircraft and uh, you know 20 allied countries. That's telegramming something to, uh, to Russia, yeah. letting them know, hey, by the way, uh, all of us are standing together when you when you have B1s flying with the uh, with typhoons and yeah. you know and yeah, yeah it's There's a subtle way of saying just saying you know <laughs> yeah uh, Jonathan Warner I thought you had actually taken most of those pictures I thought you yeah, had I assume so. yeah, hitched a ride on a on a tanker somewhere. Oh, can uh, you imagine? He would be beside himself if that was... Yeah, yeah. Durgess is saying uh, Jagel was absolutely crowded. Uh, it was at uh, Spanga Spangdalem. Spangdalem. Spangdalem, yeah. And it was really nice, uh, uh, Dirk is saying. So yeah, I'm sure these guys are getting some great pictures. Yeah, I'll bet. I bet. It's, I mean, it sounds like an amazing exercise. It's nice to see them sort of like all getting together, isn't it? To just sort of see how it all... Or, you know, sort of just... Uh, the, the comms and stuff. I, I forgive my naivety on this one, uh, Armando. I mean, uh, is do do they use uh, like I guess the common language is English, is it? It's usually English, yeah. Yeah, uh, but that's that's part of it, right? That's part of the uh, purpose of an exercise like this is establishing and practicing common terminology, yep. um, and that is kind of sent in in uh, international joint doctrine where everybody gets trained up on how to. Uh, call out their calls, you know, whether you're in air superiority role or you're in an air to ground attack role or you're supporting ground troops because you might have a German pilot supporting Dutch ground troops, mm. an American uh, intelligence asset supporting uh, Finnish helicopters. And everybody has to be not not just on the same uh, frequencies, right? You have to have interoperable equipment, but you have to have that that ability to to overcome the language barrier, mm. and generally it is English. 
indeed. And it's uh, and it's good to, it's good to uh, sort of test these things, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Um, Jonathan Warner says thirty six A tens cross the pond. Man, that's such a <laughs> that's a beautiful thing for such an ugly airplane. Such yeah. a beautiful thing. <laughs> right. Okay. Why do you say it's ugly? Um, Just out of interest, why why is it ugly? I think most people think it's ugly. I think it's a pretty airplane. Okay. The A ten. My main concern about this, the last story, was that we didn't offend uh, Dirk with some of the German pronunciation. Oh, sorry. Uh, did, I, did I do a really bad job? I'm so sorry. Well, he, he, will, he will tell you whether you did or not. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Oh, dear. These are the yeah. A10s, by the way. John's just popped up on the screen there. Um, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're an unusual... Um, it's got a certain phallic quality, I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> well, especially from this angle. Well, quite, absolutely. Yeah. It's not the best view, uh, yeah. indeed. But there we go. Never mind. All right, we probably should uh, move on. I think it's time to start wrapping up. I can't believe yeah. it. Well, no, you've got... Uh, com oh, competition we, yeah. time. Yes, yeah. yes, sorry. You know, we live for the competition. We do. My apologies. I'm getting ahead My of myself. My Saturday morning is not... That's why we save it till the end. <laughs> Going to the post office. <laughs> yeah, never um, purpose. So, last week's question was I, I couldn't believe the answer to this until I looked it up. How many marks of the Spitfire aircraft were produced? I thought it was about nine because I heard people talk mm. about the Mark 9 Spitfire. I can't, I can't have any more than that, surely. The answer is 24. What? Incredible. Absolutely unbelievable. Uh, over 20,000 aircraft were produced as well. Amazing. Uh, I do have the uh, the winning answers in this bag. Very popular this week it was as well, uh, the competition. Sure, some people are Googling it, but it doesn't matter because uh, as long as we've got the right answers, which are all in here, I shall pick one out at random. And let's have a look. Oh, it's our good friend Arnie Carlson. Nice. And I'll just open that up so you can see it. There we go. Uh, so, Arnie, I will send you an email shortly, and I will send you your prize, which is uh, this book here, From Spitfires to Vampires and Beyond, uh, all about uh, Owen Hardy, a Kiwi pilot. And, of course, we've got another question for this week as well. We're going through these books like the clappers at the moment, thanks to our chums at Grub Street Publishing. Uh, this next one is a very interesting one, From Mons to Marley. Uh, 50 extraordinary and little-known vignettes of British and, com and Commonwealth airmen in action since 1914. Nice. And this week's question, I'm sure you can get, guess the answer to this, but of course, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to make it a little bit easier. This week's question is, in 1927, Charles Lindbergh was the first person to fly his aircraft, the Spirit of St. Louis, but across which ocean did he fly it? In 1927, Charles Lindbergh was the first person to fly his aircraft, the Spirit of St. Louis, but across which ocean? Answers to podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Don't put it in the chat room because it won't count. And uh, I will draw out the, uh, the winning answers uh, on next week's show. So uh, good luck for that. Indeed, indeed. Thank you, Nev. And uh, while, while we're doing social medias, let's just uh, run through a few of them. As I say, we pop that up there. Of course, the email address is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. You can send in your answer to the quiz that Nev has just given you the question for. You can also get in touch uh, and sort of give us some of your feedback, any comments you have about the show as well, good or bad. We like to hear what you think of the show because it is done for you at the end of the day. We do have a WhatsApp number as well. It's plus four four seven five 
447-527-4966. That's plus 447-527-2249166. And that now goes straight through to Carlos. It's your direct line to Carlos to, to uh, pass on any pictures or comments that you may have uh, you can follow us on our social media services it is uh, searching all the usual platforms instagram twitter and facebook you'll find us under the tag plain talking uk all as one word that is plain talking uk.com and don't forget of course our website uh, you can go on there and uh, you can buy t-shirts and mugs uh, on there as well as finding out a little bit more about the people who are involved in the podcast itself that website is www.plaintalkinguk.com that's www.plaintalkinguk.com excellent very good indeed uh, so shall we wrap up uh, what's mm. the plans for next week Armando what you got uh, planned uh, I've actually only got one flight scheduled for Monday of next week. It's kind of a long day uh, down to Atlanta and Alabama. Uh, but uh, so far, that's pretty much it. So hopefully get the weather clears up and I can fly the Cub. Oh, oh yes. Nice. Nice, yes, of course. Yeah. Yes. I assume the Cub is all, all good now after the excitement. Uh, one of those pictures that I sent you guys on our group chat uh, was right near the airfield. That One of those funnel clouds that almost touched down. Uh, was actually right near the airfield. So the following day, I did go out and check on the airplane. Everything was just fine. As you saw, actually, when I recorded uh, our commercial story about Jim Tweedo, um, that was one of those days where it was just raining cats and dogs out there right. at Bradford Airfield. Yeah, absolutely, indeed. What about you, Nev? What are you up to? Well, no flying next week, I'm pleased to say. Uh, so nothing can go wrong. That's the main thing. Um, <laughs> just a quick trip down to Brighton, to our office down there for work. Um, bits and pieces. Not, uh, well, busy, but not, no, not actually going too far uh, next week. So uh, look forward to seeing you back on the show on Friday. I'll be well. Indeed. Right. Uh, we better wrap up. Otherwise, we're going to overrun. We don't want to do that now, do we? Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, thank you very much to everyone who has joined us. Uh, get in touch with the show. We'll be back same time next week, 7 p.m. on Friday. The uh, audio version of the show is released uh, on Sunday, usually. So catch it from all your favourite podcast platforms. Uh, you can download the show to listen to in the car or wherever. But that is pretty much it. Armando, thank you for being here this week. Nev, thank you as always. My thanks to both John and Nick who work tirelessly and really hard behind the scenes putting everything together. Uh, take care everyone. We'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.